thanks so much to Dean um, and to Laura and Karen and Alison and Sarah for leading us in our praise of God tonight and also to David and Alan down at the back for looking after all of the things that appear in the screen and the sound and it's been a busy day for them with Children's Day as well today and we appreciate that so much. So turning to God's Word together again and I would encourage you to look in your Bibles at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and those opening verses. From time to time in this series, as we come to a new chapter or a new point in this book, it is worth reminding ourselves of the nature of the relationship that existed between the writer of this letter, who is the Apostle Paul, and the recipient of the letter, and who bears the name of this letter, Timothy. So, Timothy was a younger co-worker of Paul. He was a, a gospel minister like Paul. He was someone who had worked closely with Paul in some of the church planting and mission work that he had been doing. But how does Paul regard Timothy? Well, we get a, a flavor of that at the start of both of these letters. So, if you look back at the start of this particular letter, this book, 1 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 2. He's not there describing Timothy as a co-worker, as a colleague. No, it, it's a warm and deep relationship. He says of him, my true son in the faith. And you get a, a sense of the, the closeness that existed between these men, these brothers in Christ, and it sets a template for us as well. When he writes to Timothy in the second letter, what we know and describe as 2 Timothy, again at the beginning of that book, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, and he says to Timothy, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. So there's this real hunger, this desire, this expectation to be reunited with his Christian friend, with the one that he looks upon as being a son, because actually, Timothy's presence is not only a help, it brings him joy in his life as a follower of Jesus. And so, understanding this, over the course of this series, we have described this letter as being both personal and prophetic. And what we're really saying is that while it was a letter that was addressed to and intended for one person, it has important things to say from God to His people in all places and at all times. It is prophetic. It is God speaking through His servant. And hopefully you can remember back to last week when we looked at the end of chapter 3. We looked at chapter 3 and verses 14 to 16, which the Australian minister and writer Philip Jensen describes as being the center point of this letter. And what that means is, if you're wanting to figure out what this letter of 1 Timothy is all about, if you want to get the, the crux of the matter, then read those verses, particularly the final verse, verse 16, and we'll come back to that again in just a moment. This helps us to understand the argument that Paul is making to Timothy and what it is that he wants Timothy to do within this church that he's working in. 
in a place called Ephesus. And we spent quite a bit of time last week thinking about the mystery of godliness, the secret of godliness. And what we were struck by is that the, the mystery of godliness is not some kind of six-step guide to better living, but in actual fact, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, look again at the end of chapter 3 and what it is that Paul writes to Timothy there in verse 16, and you'll see that when it comes to talking about the mystery of godliness, what it is that Paul talks about or who it is that he talks about is Jesus. And he almost provides a summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus, and the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. So, look at chapter 3, verse 16. He says of the Lord Jesus, He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And to attempt to summarize all that we thought about last week as we studied God's Word and all that we're hearing from Paul at the end of this chapter, we are not, therefore, to be people who pin our hopes on self-help and solely on our own determination to reform, but rather we are called to be, and indeed we are in Christ gospel people. So, for us, it really is all about Jesus, and our godliness comes through Christ. And it's this summary that lies right at the heart of this letter, this summary of the gospel. But now, as we move into chapter 4, Paul warns Timothy of those who will turn away from this gospel if this is the crux of Paul's message to Timothy, and if this is the heart of what we believe, what we accept as those who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, the great problem in this church is that there are people who are turning away from it, who are rejecting it, who are no longer placing their confidence in this message. So, that Paul tells Timothy and the congregation that Timothy is ministering to in Ephesus to be on their guard. So, next time, God willing, next week, when we look at the following verses here in chapter 4, we'll take some time to think about how Timothy was to counteract this false teaching, because that was, after all, the principal reason for Paul sending Timothy into Ephesus. It's a bit like when you hear of an organization that's in trouble or a place that sometimes a failing school, and you hear about someone being parachuted in. Now, they're not literally dropping out of the sky, but it's a, a phrase for action. Someone is dropped into that situation to make a difference. And it's as if Timothy has been parachuted into Ephesus as a troubleshooter, as a, a gospel person who will address the problems that are going on within this congregation. 
so that it's his particular calling to deal with this false teaching and to seek to repair the damage that it was causing within that congregation. And we'll think much more about that next week. But this evening, let's think about the nature of this false teaching, this particular false teaching, and consider some of the lessons and the warnings that that provides for us in our own lives as disciples of Jesus and within the life of this fellowship as well. And as we do that, let's particularly focus on verse 1. And if you look at that verse again, Paul writes, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And if we try and break that verse up, because there's a lot going on in that verse, and there are many important things that we really need to be able to understand in that introductory verse. Well, if we do it in the way that we have been taught to do it at school, if we break it up by asking some questions, you know, those who, when, what kind of questions. So, the who in this verse, well, that is the Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, mentioned right at the beginning in verse 1. So, it's important to see that Paul is, is not saying, it's my opinion, or it's my view, or Timothy, it is my contention that this is what's going to happen. No, he begins by saying, the Spirit. And as we think about this amazing process of the formulation of that part of the Scriptures that we describe as the New Testament, and it was being formed in these moments, in these years, as the church grew, as the apostles continued their ministry within the church, do we understand the exact mechanics of how that happened? Do we know exactly how the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, spoke to Paul and placed these thoughts within Paul's mind? We don't. We don't understand the exact mechanics of this. But here is the key thing, that on the part of Paul, as he proclaims God's Word, as he brings to us God's opinion, God's verdict, God's view, this is not vague guesswork. So that today when we encounter those who wrongly say that the Spirit continues to speak through people in this way, and that is completely unnecessary because we have in Scripture all that God wants us to know. We have His complete, His finished revelation, so such utterances are unnecessary. But when people lay claim to that, there's so often a vagueness. I have this sense in which, I have this feeling, well, that is not the way in which Paul articulates the message that he is bringing from God. Look at the first three words as they're, they're placed there in the NIV. The Spirit clearly, the Spirit clearly says. And so, for us tonight, we marvel at this because this is not Paul's opinion. 
it's not a man's viewpoint, but it is actually God's verdict. And that gives us immense confidence and should lead to an incredible obedience. So that's the who, but then the when. What is it the Spirit is talking about? The Spirit says that the when is, in verse 1, in later times. And that phrase, in later times, is similar to that phrase, last days, that we encounter a lot in the New Testament. And the key thing for us to understand is that when in Scripture it talks about these later times or these last days, this is a period that we are located in. It is the period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, an event that has already happened, the incarnation that we read about in the Gospels, that event that we celebrate, especially at Christmas, and an event that lies in the future, the exact time we are unsure of, but we live in expectation of the return of Jesus. So, here we are, slap bang in the middle of all of that, and the later times are times that we are living in. This relates to us. And so, it has a great relevance for us. And what is it that the Spirit is warning the church of? Well, it's this, look at this part of verse 1, that some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. I don't know if you've ever been involved in or you've ever gone to watch war reenactment. It seems to be a huge thing. It's something that happens in our part of the world. Scarva on, is it the day after the 12th, the 13th of July, there's the sham fight. Um, you sometimes get people around Carrick having the landing of King William and a wee bit of a scrap that's meant to signify the Battle of the Boyne. So, we have it in this part of the world. In England, there are all of these organizations on both sides of the English Civil War. In America, they have these massive big reenactments of battles. But I have to confess that whenever I hear of war reenactment, there's something a wee bit naff about it, something a bit lame. Because by its very nature, it could never possibly be like the real thing. If it was, there'd be people walking about without limbs, and there would be people who would never walk again. And I wonder tonight, are we as a church, are we as individual disciples of the Lord Jesus engaged in a form of spiritual warfare reenactment? It's a bit lame. It doesn't really relate to the real thing at all. We're simply playing at it. Because what we get to hear from the Spirit brought to us through Paul in God's Word in verse 1 is that this is really serious. So that what we need to understand is that those who move away from the gospel, and therefore those who move away from Jesus, who move away from a reliance upon Christ, are not as some people would articulate it and imagine it to be today. They are not free thinkers. They're not, to use that word that is in vogue, reimagining the gospel, reimagining 
the Christian faith. It's not that they are just a little bit off course. Now, what is it the Spirit tells us? They are being deceived by demonic forces. That's serious, isn't it? They are being deceived by demonic forces. And what a warning to us in an age of spirituality. And we just look at social media and we get to see the preoccupation that so many people have with spirituality that not all spiritual teaching is good and true. And if you can remember all the way back, Paul has already talked about the nature of these false teachers back in chapter 1, but he reserves his greatest condemnation for them here in chapter 4 and verse 2. Look at that verse again on the screen or in your scriptures. He describes them as hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron so that whatever their motives for teaching what they are, it's not just a case of it being inaccurate or misguided or confusing or an alternative viewpoint. No, Paul is making it clear, the Spirit of God is making it clear, they are teaching lies. And so if we think about that, we know, we understand, we believe that God's Word is truth. And therefore, anything contrary to the gospel is by its very nature a lie. And so what that does is that, first of all, really ups the ante for those of us who are called to be teachers and preachers of the Word. And for those who handle the Word within our congregation here, including those who are teaching our little ones and our young people, that we would never teach anything contrary to what Scripture actually says. But what is it these particular false teachers were teaching? Was it license? Was it an invitation to do whatever you want, as was so often the case with false teaching that we encounter in the New Testament? Well, actually, no. On this occasion, these false teachers were teaching the exact opposite. And yet, what we need to understand is that it was just as dangerous and destructive and ultimately anti-gospel. Look at what they were teaching in verse 3. It is said of them, by Paul to Timothy, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So, what's going on here, or what was going on here? What was this particular false doctrine all about? And why was it such a problem? Why was it so wrong? Well, this false teaching that was going on within the church in Ephesus can be described as 
asceticism, and that's a big word, and we'll unpack that word in just a moment. But it was a teaching that centered on self-denial as a means of getting in tune with God. So, that's why there is there the call to avoid marriage and to abstain from particular foods, to deny yourself these things. And if you were to survey world religions, you would see that asceticism is very much a part of some of the main religions in the world, especially Eastern ones like Buddhism. And you would also see the appeal that there is in this asceticism. Because at first glance, on first hearing to many people, it seems very laudable. It would be appealing to moralistic people. And yet, and be sure of this, it is thoroughly anti-gospel. It is a teaching that runs entirely contrary to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And what's going on here is that these ascetics, as they would have been called, they viewed physical world as evil. And therefore, in their minds, spiritual people, people who were serious about their spirituality, needed to reject every pleasure that the physical world offered. And again, for some within the church, there was a real appeal with this. Because in their, mind, in their minds, it enabled them to take control of their spiritual life, believing that they could get on terms with God through avoidance of any kind of pleasure. Now, this way of thinking and religious living has continued within strands of Christianity to this day, maybe most notably with monastic orders, and we know a wee bit about that. Maybe you've read books about or you've watched programs about monks and about people who go into holy orders, and you know about some of the stuff that they buy into, vows of silence. Even you hear of people wearing uncomfortable clothes or putting sackcloth up through their clothes onto their back or or, or hurting themselves, or, or depriving themselves from certain kinds of food. But then closer to home, closer to us, this is an approach to Christian living that can subtly creep into people's lives. So, let's think of a couple of examples of that amongst a, a younger generation of Christians from a Reformed background, there is an increasing, what they would describe as recovery of our interest in Lent. And this idea of depriving yourself as a virtuous thing, if I can just give up, and you know, quite often there's a big thing made of that, you know, I'm, oh, I'm not going to take chocolate, or I'm off coffee, or I'm off this, or I'm going to deprive myself of that thing because that will just help me to focus more on the Lord. And even within our Reformed tradition, our Presbyterian tradition, 
there is that strand where there is that sense of guilt about any kind of pleasure, good food and good drink, leisure time and rest, sexual pleasure, pleasure within marriage. And of course, we rightly understand our calling to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. As much as we fail in that, hopefully we understand that and accept that. And with that in mind, maybe the question then is, so what is wrong with this kind of approach to the world and this kind of approach to life that these teachers in Ephesus were promoting? Well, to understand the big problem with this way of thinking and this teaching, we need to go back to what we were reading last week. Remember again what Paul explains there in chapter 3 and verse 16, that the mystery of godliness, the secret to godliness is not a certain course of action on our part. It's not essentially about what we do, but it is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has done for us through Him. So that a false doctrine that promotes a reliance on ourselves for our salvation is just as destructive and evil as a false doctrine that promotes license to do whatever we feel like. And why was this particular teaching false? Well, to answer that, Paul gives us the truth. And the truth is contained there in verses 4 and 5. He says, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. So that our proper understanding of this world comes about through what the Bible tells us about creation. And we know that the creation account tells us that God created the world for His good purposes. He saw that what He had created was good. That was God's verdict on creation. You know that from Sunday school and from, from your encounters with Scripture. And that we as people who have been made in God's image are given dominion over this world. We're responsible for its use and its care. So that Paul says, in the light of this truth, we do not reject good created things such as marriage and good food, but rather we should receive them with genuine gratitude to the Lord. And it's very important to see that for Paul, the way to counter and refute false teaching is the correct use of the Scriptures. That Paul doesn't set himself about demolishing the argument using his reason. He sets about demolishing this false teaching by promoting the Scriptures, by saying, what is it that God has told us? Here it is. Now, finally, as we come towards the end, 
What does all this mean for us as a church tonight? Well, remember that the ultimate source of false or anti-gospel teaching, no matter how plausible or appealing it may sound to us, the ultimate source, as Paul says in verse 1, is the deceiving spirits and demons that are mentioned in that verse. And what that means for us is that the stakes are very high. We need to combat false teaching. We need to pray as we will do in just a moment. We need to pray together. We need to gather to pray together because the battle is not ours. The battle belongs to the Lord. And it's not a reenactment. It is the real thing. And it means that you need to pray for and listen to those who are faithful preachers and teachers as they do that in a tough season. It means that we need to be alert to spiritual warfare and we need to be intolerant of false teaching so that we finish with the example of the Berean Christians that we'll think about in a while, in, 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 a, in maybe a few months' time or a couple of months' time, when we turn in our Acts series to Acts 17. But listen to their example in Acts 17, verse 11. Luke tells us that the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message, that is the message of the gospel, with great eagerness. And this is the bit they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And may that be the case for us in this church and in our lives. And so what we want to do now is to pray, to pray for the teaching of Scripture. And we'll do that together now. Let's unite our hearts in prayer.